Right on. Well, when we were in Matthew 26, where we've left off, we kind of came to the close. <clears throat> the chapter closed off with the account of Peter's denial of Jesus, as well as Jesus being led out of Caiaphas, Caiaphas the high priest's palace, after the you know, illegal midnight trial meeting of the Sanhedrin to take Jesus to it. Essentially, they brought Jesus before the Jewish Supreme Court under the cloak of darkness. And we pick up the story uh, from there. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Now the previous night, uh, we know this from where we've been and from what Matthew tells us, that the council had already determined that Jesus deserved to die for uh, blasphemy. And it truly would have been blasphemy except for the fact that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. The Son of God, the Christ, uh, the Messiah. And so this morning meeting where they take counsel, it was really this. I mean, the decision was already made. He's going to die. We're going to put him to death. But the morning council meeting was really about uh, discussing how they were going to make this happen because it wasn't that simple. Jewish, the Jewish method for capital punishment was stoning. You know the deal. We see that throughout the scriptures. And so that was their method for capital punishment. And so if they were going to carry out the sentence on Jesus, they would have stoned him. And this is where I would say this. I mean, it's obvious the sovereign plan of God intervened. His design. His plan for Jesus. Because the scripture prophesied regarding uh, the death of the Christ, the Messiah. That he would be pierced through the hands and through the feet. Isaiah had prophesied 700 years before the time of Jesus. We read about it in Isaiah 53 verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. David, a thousand years, 300,000 years before Jesus and 300 years before Isaiah gave that prophecy, David prophesied. Psalm 22 he said this, they've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. David said those words a thousand years before. It's incredible. Before the time of Jesus. And so in his sovereign plan for the redemption of the world, God had another design for the Messiah than the usual method of capital punishment. The Old Testament actually gives this depiction of the Son of God being crucified. Even, even Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 21 that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Cursed is anyone that hangs on a tree. And so Jews, un under the authority of Rome, were actually not allowed to mete out their method of capital punishment. They couldn't go about the stoning. Uh, the, the right of capital punishment was something that the Romans held dear. They said, no, we control this. You don't have control over that anymore. And so the Sanhedrin had to, to meet and manipulate Rome so as to dispense their plan. And what was the Roman method of capital punishment? Well, we know. 
crucifixion. But here's the thing. Though the Sanhedrin needed to manipulate Rome, Rome was not innocent. In fact, I think as we go through this passage today, <coughs> that, that we'll see in a sense that it's not really Jesus who's on trial. All of mankind, all of humanity is on, on trial. The human race is on tr trial. And Jew and Gentile alike, therefore, need to have their hand in the crucifixion. It wasn't just the Jews. It was the Gentile world as well. And so what we see is that the fulfillment of, of prophecy demanded this, that Jesus be brought to the Roman governor and that he would die a Roman death, that he would be pierced through the hands and through the feet. Now I think, it's, I think something that's interesting to consider is actually this, that, that the Romans really represent the entire Gentile world. They represent all of, all of the world, really. The Roman ar army was actually made up of individuals that were drafted from every nation that they had uh, subdued and conquered and that had become a part of their empire. And so it's like the Roman army, you think about the soldiers who we're going to see next week, who are going to lay the beating on Jesus. I mean, they represented the nations. They were, they were a mixed, mixed bag of men. And so it's as though the... The Jews sentenced Jesus to death and it's as though the Gentiles, the Romans, uh, devised the method of his execution. He would die for the sins of the world. He would die for Jew and Gentile alike. He'd give his life to be murdered at the hands of the, of the whole world in that sense. And so the night and the morning of Jesus' trial, you think about this, he was actually marched clear across the city several times. Literally, he traveled all of the major routes through Jerusalem. He went from the Garden of Gethsemane to Caiaphas' house, from Caiaphas' house to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod, from Herod back to Pilate. I mean, if Jerusalem were a square, he, is, he, he literally touched the four corners of the city. It's really kind of a fascinating thing that God did. He just made sure... That, that no one in that city was without an understanding or an excuse or setting their eyes really on what had happened. North, south, east, and west. Each of those places, Jesus was dragged in that city that night. And somewhere early in that process, after Jesus had been condemned to die, the procession, as it was moving through the, the streets of uh, it passed somewhere at some point in time the eyes of Judas. Judas saw what had happened. Judas saw that Jesus had been sentenced to death. He saw his swollen face from those who had been beating on him already before things had even really cranked up. The swollen face of the rabbi that he had betrayed. And Judas knew this, that it had just begun for Jesus. Check out verse 3. I need a sip of water first. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. I mean, you read this and you have to wonder about Judas, this character. I mean, he felt 
at some point, and during the whole betrayal process and leaning up to it, he had to have felt on some level that it was, you know, politi- politically expedient for him to get rid of Jesus. There was an opportunity to make some money, and Jesus on some level, as we've seen throughout this gospel account, was a dispo- disappointment to the misguided expectations of Judas, the apostle. Judas had been called to follow Jesus in discipleship. He had been commissioned as an apostle. And as much as it was expedient for him to rid himself of Jesus, it's likely that I I think Judas maybe thought Jesus would somehow escape the snare, you know, that he'd escape the trap that was set for him. Judas had watched Jesus do that many times. You know, slip away from the crowds that, pressured him, escaped the hands of men who would force him into kingship ahead of God's timetable and plan. I mean, Jesus knew how to make a getaway when he needed to make a getaway. But what Judas didn't understand was this, is that now this was the father's timetable. It was Passover. The lamb of God would be offered up. He would offer up his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world to be slaughtered. And so, when you think about Judas, I, I think if he had any inkling that, that Jesus was to escape, if he thought maybe he could pocket some silver and watch Jesus walk away unharmed, the reality that that, that wasn't going to work out that way was quickly settling into his heart and into his mind. And so the scripture tells us here, <coughs> excuse me, that he changed his mind that he changed his mind in regards to the decision that he had made. Do you know what that, that's what repentance is, to have a change of mind. The biblical definition of repentance is to to change your mind about sin and to change your mind about Jesus. And in that change of mind, you do this, you, you turn away from something, sin, and you turn towards something, or to someone, Jesus. It's a, it's a 180 degree turn. You turn away from sin and you turn in faith to Jesus. See, true repentance, I would say, is, is more than just feeling bad. Unfortunately, though, Judas didn't make the full journey of true repentance. He didn't make the journey of faith in Jesus. His his change of mind in the original language actually expresses this idea. Not that he was repentant, but that he was remorseful. That he regretted what he had done. That he had regret and he had remorse. But here's the thing. That's not repentance. I mean, he acknowledged his sin. He said, I have sinned against innocent blood. He acknowledged his sin but he didn't repent. He's just full of regret, full of remorse, regret that things didn't turn out the way that he had hoped. And in his regret, he didn't go to the Savior. He didn't go to Jesus. I mean, I have to believe this. We have to believe this, that in this account, that that even at this very late hour, had, had Judas turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, forgive me, Jesus would have forgiven him. He would have found forgiveness. But instead, where where did he go? The story tells us. He went to the priests. 
He went to the chief priests. They were godless men. And their response was what you would expect from godless men. They didn't care. You made your bed. What's it to us? You feel bad. I guess you shouldn't have done that. Too bad for you. So what? You know, I just think, what if Judas had gone to Jesus? In true repentance, I would say this, it matters to whom you turn. And Judas, as we consider this story, he he knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong. I mean, you think about it, if anyone could have brought testimony against Jesus for wrongdoing, Judas should be at the top of that list. I mean, he had spent so much time with Jesus, three years, if if Jesus ever just lashed out in anger, Judas would have seen it. If he had ever done anything wrong, Judas would have been a witness against Jesus. But he knew this, that Jesus was innocent. And so, you know, when you just consider this whole scene, I I think it's important that we really make note this morning of what true repentance is and what it's not. It's not regret. True repentance is not regret, though it involves regret. It's not remorse, though it may involve remorse. Repentance from sin is a a change of mind that involves a turning from sin and a turning in faith towards Jesus Christ. Perfect example of it is the prodigal son. Remember him? In the pig pen. That young man didn't just regret or feel remorseful that life had wound up in the pig pen because of the decisions that he had made. He left the pig pen and he went home to his father. He got out of the pig pen. He said, I'm, I'm turning away from this muck and this mire and I'm going home to my father. That's a good example of repentance to leave the pig pen of sin and go to Jesus. Or I think about Peter. He's a good example. He denied Jesus and he went out and he wept after denying him. Judas, what did he do? He, he went out and he hung himself. Threw the silver into the temple and he went out and he hung himself. It's tragic. I mean, this is one of the tragedies of the, of the Bible to, to, to read about this man. You know, and I think it's the greatest tragedy in the world, really. When you think about Judas, this, this is repeated over and over in many people's lives. The greatest tragedy in the world is when a person abandons the opportunity for repentance. When there's an opportunity for repentance and it's laid out before them and they don't go all the way. They just, ah, I regret what I did. But they don't turn to Jesus. You know, I love that song we sang this morning there. At the cross, at the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life to you. I'm in awe of you. Where your blood ran red and my sin washed white, I owe all to you. That's a story of repentance. To come to the cross and say, I I need you, Jesus, to wash me in your blood. I I turn from my sin and I surrender all to you. And so somewhere in this this scene, Judas took that bag of coins and he 
tossed it into, tossed the silver into the temple and the, the bag broke open, the money spilt, the coins rolled and clinked across the stone pavement. And verse 6 tells us this, but the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. And I just read that, I think, what, now you're concerned about what's lawful? It's kind of like, this is the humor in the story. Like somewhere there's comic relief. This is it right here. Hypocrisy. This is the heart of hypocrisy right here. It's, hypocrisy is kind of funny when you see it, right? It really is. When you see it for what it is. This is just so convenient. Now, now, yeah, now it involves money. So let's, let's figure it out. So verse 7. So they took counsel and bought with, with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. In ancient times, a potter was a really vital part of a community. I mean, we, we don't think about this sometimes. You know, we, we have Tupperware parties, and we go to Walmart and buy Rubbermaid and things like that. And, you know, you didn't, you didn't have that opportunity in those days to just go out and buy these products. Pottery was all the rage, you know, over plastic. And, uh, you know, but the question is this, is what, what did you do? If, if your piece of pottery was chipped, if it got cracked, if, if it broke, if as it was being fashioned in the hands of the potter, you know, something went wrong with it, what did you do with it? Well, it was just tossed out. It was thrown out. And what they would do is this, is that they would have designated areas in a community where they just, it was the garbage heap, where you would toss all the pieces of broken pottery. And over time, the pottery would heap up in that space. You know, obviously nothing would grow. It would be useless property, really good for nothing. And so they would use these pieces of land to, to bury foreigners, to bury strangers, to bury travelers. And really, when you think about it, this is a great picture of what Jesus did for you and for I. The, the potter's field was purchased with the blood money of Jesus. The blood money of Jesus was used to purchase the place where broken, useless pieces of pottery were tossed and where dead bodies were disposed of. Useless pieces, that's, that's us, dead bodies, that, that, that's us. Without Jesus, the chips and the cracks and the brokenness of our lives makes us useless. We're dead in sin, right? That's the picture of, of the gospel. We're, we're good for nothing. And what can be done with broken pottery? Well, what's done with it in this story is the picture of redemption. It's purchased with the blood money of Jesus. You know, pottery in, in that culture, if it was, if it was reheated and it was, it was put in water, it could be made pliable and reshaped and repurposed and restored in the hand of the potter. And you and I, that's us. We're like broken pottery. And, and the master potter, he, he uses the heat of trials in our lives, the, the heat of trouble in our lives that he allows. He warms us with his love. He washes us in his word and we can be reshaped and remolded and reused and restored in the hands of the master potter. I want to show you a text that I love. It's in Jeremiah 18. Can you turn there for a second? 
It's right after the book of Isaiah. So if you kind of split your Bible almost in half, Isaiah's right of center. Jeremiah's right after that. Jeremiah 18. Keep your finger in Matthew. Jeremiah 18 says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand. I love that. That's you and me. Like clay in the potter's hand, so you and I are in the hands of Christ, purchased with his blood. That, that field of broken pottery and dead bodies was bought with the blood money of Jesus. And when we turn to the Lord, when, when we've been purchased, when we recognize that we've been purchased with his blood, and then we, and then we make that decision of repentance to turn from our sin and to turn in faith to Jesus, we, we become like broken pottery that comes back into his hand and he just begins to mold us and to reshape us, and to retool us, and to restore us, and give our lives a shape for his purpose, and for his glory. It's a great picture. Jump back to Matthew chapter 27. It tells us this. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when, he, but when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. This character Pilate comes into the story now. The Roman governor History tells us that by this point in time in his career, Pilate's hanging on by a thread. Um, in terms of his role in the Roman government, and really in terms of his own personal history, because history actually recounts that early church historians tell us what happened to Pilate after this day. He's a man who actually went crazy. He lost his mind after the Romans disposed of him. But at this point in time, I mean, he'd been sent to the, the province of Palestine to deal with the Jews, and it wasn't really a desirable position in terms of the government. And Pilate immediately made a number of blunders and errors that caused a lot of conflict between him and the Jews. He actually did this. He, he, he took some men that had rebelled against him because they saw the, the Roman eagle and they, the Jewish people considered that an idol when it was brought into the city of Jerusalem. And so they caused a rebellion and Pilate took these men and he brought them into a, an amphitheater and he was going to behead them in front of the crowds. And they cried out to 
Pilate before they were beheaded and they said this, you go and you, have, you behead us because there's 10,000 behind us who will do the same thing if you bring that idol into our city. And so Pilate backed off and it was a blunder in terms of what the Romans believed he should have done. Another thing he did in his desire to smooth things over with the Jews was that he thought, I'll build a system and I'll bring some more fresh water into the city of Jerusalem so that everyone's got nice clean water from the north. The problem was this, is that he went into the temple and he took money from the temple treasury to fund this, uh, this project. And so you can imagine how that went over. And so he's, he's like blown it all over the place. He's hanging on by a thread in terms of his role here. He's just standing on his last leg when Jesus is brought to him. And Pilate would have been familiar with who Jesus was. I, I'm sure he'd got the reports regarding Palm Sunday, not even a week earlier. He probably had a laugh with some of his boys. Look at that Jewish king. Look at that, look at that joke of a procession out there that they worshiping him. And now Jesus is standing before him. His face is swollen. He's already been roughed up the night before. It's early in the morning. It's probably before 6 a.m. And, and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you've said so. In other words, it's exactly as you say. That's right. I'm the king of the Jews. You said it. I'm sure the governor was <clears throat> surprised that this man that was in front of him affirmed that he was the king because it was contrary to all appearances uh, that they're giving a beating to their king. But indeed, he was the king of the Jews. And then the chief priests and the elders began to hurl their accusations. And just like earlier in the evening when they had been in the house of Caiaphas, uh, Jesus remained silent. No answer. And it surprised Pilate. Don't you hear what they're saying about you, he asked. But Jesus didn't answer one charge and Pilate was greatly amazed. I mean, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. You, you can't argue with silence and what's, what's the point when all of the charges are false, you know? I think about myself and I think that you're exactly the same so I'm happy to share it, you know? There's just a self-defense that rises up within me sometimes, you know? It's like, no, you got it wrong. You know, when someone says something that's off base, it's just innate in all of us to just defend ourselves especially against falsehood and Jesus is just it's just a barrage of falsehood and does he defend himself he just he just remains silent now check this out verse 15 it says now at the feast this is speaking of Passover now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd, any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So they went, so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Bit of a scene goes on that Matthew doesn't tell us about, but the other gospels do. John tells us about it, that, that Pilate, Remove Jesus. They went back into his chamber. They had a private conversation. You know, don't you know I have the power to release you? And Jesus said, you don't have any power except what's been given to you. And they had this discussion about the truth and, 
And Jesus declared to Pilate, whoever hears my voice, hears the voice of truth. Pilate was shaken up. And so he came up with this plan. I, I usually give away a, a prisoner. I release somebody at this point in time. And so he went and he found the baddest dude that he had locked up in his prison. This man named Barabbas. It's interesting. Barabbas. Bar in Jew means the son of. Abbas, father. The son of the father. That's what this guy is called. It's What the heck? You've got Jesus, the Son of God, who is the true Son of the Father, and you've got Barabbas, who's given this, this name or this title, the Son of the, the Father. It's pretty weird when you consider that God the Father said of his Son, Jesus, with him I am well pleased. And Pilate's got this notorious prisoner, Barabbas, guilty of insurrection. Other Gospels tell us guilty of murder, I kind of wonder if he had a little bit of a messianic complex, you know, a little bit crazy, obviously, taking that title Barabbas. A man who had no character, brutal, despicable, hated by his own people, hated by the enemy. And really, Pilate was seen through the whole scene. He was seen through what was going on in this whole situation, uh, that, he, that this was envy that these Jewish leaders were motivated by. And so he offered up Barabbas and it was clearly and totally a political move. It was a political move. He could see through their envy. There's no way that he thought they would choose Barabbas over Jesus. You got, you got a man who's innocent, whom he can't find anything wrong with. And you've got this notorious insurrectionist murderer. But Pilate didn't know how deep their hate was. Look at verse 19. Besides, it says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. It's interesting uh, that it says that Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat. I mean, is he really on the judgment seat? Like, who is really in charge of this trial? Is it Jesus or is it Pilate? I, I, it was Jesus. His wife, her name was Claudia Procula. She's the daughter of Augustus. Augustus Caesar. And Pontius Pilate had married her. History actually tells us that she not only converted to Judaism, but that after this event, she became a convert and a follower of Jesus Christ. It's pretty awesome. What motivated her dream at this point? I don't know. Was it superstition? Was it God? Was it just, who knows? But she warned her husband. Verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask Barabbas, to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Man, I mean, this is a mob that is hungry for blood. Those chief priests, they were slick politicians. I mean, you read this, they had primed the crowd, man. They were working the crowd. They'd turned that crowd into a bloodthirsty mob. 
And Pilate said this, what shall I do with Jesus? That's a good question. <laughs> That's a good question for the life of every person here, for the life of every person in the history of the world. What shall I do with Jesus? And that's the question Pilate asked. He, even Pilate himself, right then and there, had to make a choice. What am I going to do with Jesus? He could either stand up for what he knew was right, or he could follow the crowd. What he knew was right was that Jesus was innocent, or he could follow the crowd and save his political skin. And so too, I, I would say this, there, there, there are those who truly know in the bottom of their hearts that Jesus Christ is the only way. They know it in the bottom of their hearts. Even though the crowd around them says, don't be so narrow, you know, don't be so restrictive, don't be so narrow-minded, close-minded. And here's Pilate, I mean, he's like every human being. He's asking this question saying, what should I do with Jesus? And there is a, there is a struggle in his conscience. A struggle in his heart. And even for that matter, here's Jesus. He's not defending himself. It's just silence, innocence, no real weight brought against him in terms of the accusations. It's like he had an innocent prisoner in front of him, and though the prisoner was innocent, the prisoner wasn't trying to escape. Think about that. If you were innocent, the effort you would make to get out of the hands of those who could sentence you. But it's not Jesus. He's innocent, and yet he's not trying to escape. And what that tells, tells us is that, that even though this has the appearance of being out of control, even though it appears that Pilate is the judge, and Jesus is the innocent victim, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus was completely in control. I mean, in the sense, we almost shouldn't even feel sorry for Jesus because he's totally in control of this whole scene. I mean, in all reality, it was Jesus who's the judge and who's on trial. It's everyone else. He's standing there innocently in front of a guilty mob. Pilate's on trial. The Gentiles are on trial. The Jewish people are on trial. And by no means was Jesus a victim. By no means was he a victim of circumstance or of a situation. He was in the sovereign will of the Father and in complete control of the whole scene. It's amazing. It's amazing. It, it's the opposite of what your eye first thinks. Jesus is running the show. And I think that's why we see Pilate in such a struggle of conscience. With, with the choice of two men in front of the crowd. You got Barabbas and you got Jesus. And they demand, the mob demands that Jesus be crucified. And you can hear Pilate. Why? What, what has he done? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, the text tells us, let him be crucified. And Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus. Like I mentioned, he even, even when he interviewed him in the privacy of his own chamber, which Matthew doesn't tell us about, there's nothing wrong with him. 
And so he was struggling as to whether he would obey the conviction of his heart and the moving of his conscience in regards to the innocent of this, innocence of this man who was in front of him or would he listen to the demands of the, the mob and would he secure political position? And Pilate, he was willing to sin against God. He was willing to sin against God for the, for the praise of men. Look at verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. The start of verse 24 to me is really tell, telling because it's like Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing. This was all about what, what he could gain. This wasn't about truth. This wasn't about justice. This wasn't about right and wrong or innocence and guilt. This was about what he could gain in the situation. Tells you about the character of the man and what he saw was that a riot was beginning. It, he, he, he saw that for him, there was nothing to gain from letting Jesus to go. Everything to lose in this situation. And so he did this dramatic thing. He took water, he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Washed his hands with water. I, I just think about the contrast between these, these two characters, Judas and Pilate, and this text we're looking at this morning. It's kind of stunning. Judas went back and he faced the high priest and, and, and said, I've betrayed innocent blood. Threw his coins into the temple, went out and hung himself. Now, now here's Pilate and he says the, the same, to the very same chief priest, to the same crowd, he said, Judas said, I, I, I've sinned against this innocent man. Pilate said this, I'm innocent against this man. I, I'm innocent against the blood of this righteous man. Judas regretted, but did not repent. Pilate, on the other hand, defended his innocence. You know, I think about men who do not come to faith in Jesus Christ. They seem to do one of those two things. Regret and not repent or claim innocence. I'm innocent. I'm not, I'm not guilty. But there is no innocence in regards to Jesus. You know, Pilate, what shall I do with Jesus? Not making a choice is a choice in a sense. It's just say, I wash my hands. I'm, I'm guilt-free. I mean, clearly throughout this whole account to see the, the, the whole account is telling us that Jesus is innocent, that there's no fault in him, but then to display these two choices that these men made. The one who regretted and did not repent and the one who stuck to this line that he was innocent. Look at verse 25. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Wow, man, that's heavy. They got their way. His blood on us and on our children. I mean, the Jewish people are a beautiful, blessed people, a people that God, that God loves, but they felt the effects of this statement for centuries. You know, I come to the end of this trial and it seems to me that 
that Jesus was never on trial. It was always mankind that was on trial, but look what happens. Verse 26. Then he, Pilate, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Barabbas is released, the son of the father, given to the people. And then it tells us that Jesus was scourged. Next week we're going to get into the account of the crucifixion, but it's important that we know what scourging was. The, the, the Romans used this. It was uh, their means of, of torture and bringing out a confession or laying a beating on a guilty victim. I mean, I, I, a guilty person. I often think that maybe Pilate thought that I'll scourge Jesus and they'll let him loose. But the Roman practice of scourging involved this as the cat of nine tails, which you know what it is. It's a, it's, it's a whip-like thing with leather straps, separate leather straps, and attached to each one of those straps was bits of glass and bone and sharp edges. And so as that lashing began, typically uh, 40 minus 1, 39 lashes, you know, the skin would just begin to get red with the first couple of hits and then it would begin to open up. And it would go so far as to just tread a person's back. I mean, organs exposed, the whole deal. Bones exposed. I mean, we cannot imagine. I don't want to imagine, but I think that it's important we talk about it. Look at when scourging began. If you were innocent of the crime, <laughs> you didn't care at that point. You just began to confess. I did it. I did it. Anything to get those soldiers to stop. You'd be confessing anything that you could make up and anything that you wanted because, because death would be mercy compared to enduring that scourging. And that's the amazing thing that Jesus didn't begin to just confess. There was nothing, there was nothing to confess. He truly was an innocent, righteous, perfect man. He just endured that beating and he took everything they could dish out. And the amazing thing is, is that many men would die under the scourging of the Roman soldiers. But Jesus didn't. You know, in my mind, as much as he took it, I picture him getting up. I picture him getting up at the end of that scourging. You know, I think about this this text and, and Jew and Gentile alike, you know, refused a fair trial to Jesus. They refused a fair trial to the one before whom all will stand, the judge. You know, when we think about this text, there's a, there's a couple things that really just uh, pop out to us. And the first one is this, I think, is that question that Pilate asked. What shall I do with Jesus, who is the Christ? That was Pilate's cry to the mob. And they chose Barabbas. And the truth is, is that you and I, each one of us, sooner or later, must face that same question. That question has to be answered by every person. You, you, will, you will crown Jesus or you will crucify him. In your life, you will crown him or you will crucify him. 
based on that question. What shall I do with Jesus? Well, you know, when you think about what shall I do with Jesus, the important thing is to remember what Jesus has done for you and me. He endured all this. The innocent lamb of God led, led to the slaughter, gave his life for the sins of the world. He, he, with his blood, purchased us. Those dead bodies, those broken vessels, those crackpots. <laughs> he purchased us. And you know, when we, when we think about that, it's like, wow, man, I, I have regret. I have remorse. I feel sorry for my role in that. But if it just ends there, I'm no different than Judas. My, my regret and my remorse has to return and turn into repentance like the prodigal son. I have to turn from the pig pen and go back to the father. Go to the father. Like Peter, I, I, I got to weep over my sin and not make the mistake that Judas made. I got to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, will you forgive me of my sin against you? Jesus, I turn from that and I turn to you as the source of my life. And when we do, you know what we'll find every time? That just, innocent Jesus will grant to us forgiveness and grace, that which he purchased with his blood. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And this morning we just, we just want to pray. And uh, this morning I want to give you that opportunity. If you're in that spot where you're like, I need to, that, that's me. You know what? I think lots of times there's a lot of people that sit in churches over the ages, over the years, and their repentance has never been true. It's just been remorse and it's just been regret. They come to church and it's like, yeah, I'll just put a little bit of salve on that wound and, you know, next week I'll come and I'll feel regretful and I'll feel remorseful. And, and it's like, you never escape that. Look at I'll tell you what, there is forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness for sin and you can move past regret and remorse and find joy and strength and hope in the Lord. You can put your life right back into the potter's hands and then say, all right, I've been waiting for this. I've got a purpose for you, for the glory of my name. I'm going to reshape you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to remake you.